Hey everyone, welcome back to the Power Hour podcast to part one of my conversation with John McAvoy. I really, really enjoyed hearing John's incredible story. There were moments in this interview when I held my breath. There were moments when I had tears in my eyes. And I really think that everyone will take something away from this conversation. So I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did. Let's dive in to part one with John McAvoy. Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. John McAvoy, welcome to the Power Hour podcast. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me to come on. I'm really excited about having a conversation with you. Oh, me too. And honestly, where to begin? John, your story is truly remarkable. In fact, some parts of it are actually unbelievable. I know a lot about your story. And every time I read something else or I listen to you in another interview, I learn something new. And today I'd like to talk to you about choice, identity, moments in our life that define us, willpower, self-discipline, and, and ultimately how sport has transformed your entire life. So I think a good place to start, my first question for you is one that I think is important for listeners of the show to understand more about you and how your journey started. And that question is, when you were young, when you were a young boy at school, what was your life like and how would you describe yourself then? So when I was little, I was very hyperactive. I had a lot of energy. Um, I grew up in a really loving home. Um, My mum is an amazing woman. Um, She's had a big Irish family. Um, So my mum had seven sisters and one brother. So when I was growing up, I was just doted on by all of these women. Um, And I had my sister as well. Um, And I just had these really fond memories of Christmases, spending them with my granddad, my my aunties, um, on my mum's side of the family. And when, um, when I started going to primary school, it was only then I had the realization I didn't have a dad um, because children being children, um, people used to tease me at primary school for not having a dad because um, people used to ask me where my dad was and I didn't have a dad at home. And I asked my mum where my dad was and my mum explained to me um, that my dad had passed away before I was born. And he went to bed next to my mum. He was 38 years old. My mum was eight months pregnant with me they had only been married for a year and he went to bed next to her and he, um, he passed away and had a massive heart attack. He had an undiagnosed heart condition. Mm-hmm. So my mum explained this to me when I was really young and that really had a huge, huge impact over me as a child um, because I then realised that I wasn't going to live forever and I was too young to really understand all this. Like when I asked my mum where my dad had gone, and my mum sort of simplified it and said my dad had gone to heaven. Um, but I understood that you don't live forever from a very young age. Mm-hmm. And this event lit something up inside of me that when 
I was older, I didn't want to be normal and average. And I wanted to achieve something in my life. I wanted my life to have meaning. And as sort of I got a little bit older, um, and I was still quite young, I was only like seven or eight, I just had this passion for history. And my mum used to take me to like the HMS Belfast in London and the War Museum. And she used to buy me like books and magazines and take me to the library. And there was a set of magazines, um, and this is like in the 1980s, they were called Discovery Booklets. And they used to be, they used to come out every month. And they were like for children and they were like different stages of history. And I remember putting these booklets together, like these puzzles in these children's history magazines and just reading about men and women that had lived hundreds of years before me. And they had achieved something with their lives where like I was sitting in our flat in Crystal Palace Park Road reading about them and then this then really ignited something about legacy mm-hmm. um and again i was too young to understand what that word meant but i wanted to achieve something in my life like i wanted to be remembered yeah well i mean it's incredibly young as you described you know eight years old to have that realization about mortality and to think okay yeah i want to achieve something in my life i don't want to you know, as you you know you use the word meaningful and you know at that age who did you then i suppose look to who did you idolize you know i've got a young son and i see him and his friends and and the people that they idolize whether it's footballers or wwe wrestlers or youtubers or presidents you know who did you I suppose when you said you wanted to be known, you wanted a legacy, who do, who were you looking to then for that kind of inspiration? Do you, do you know something? It, it's quite weird, actually, because when, when I was growing up, like, I, I never really had that. Like, I, I, was, I had no interest in sport whatsoever, like, mm. literally none. Um, like, I, I would go to a, a football game every now and again, but I was really bad at sport when I was at school. So I had no, I had no like, passion for it whatsoever. But what I did, it wasn't necessarily a person, it was a thing. Um, and I was sort of, um, this passion got lit up inside me with British Telecom. Um, being, being a young kid in the 1980s where British Telecom had this monopoly over the tele- telephone communication system in the UK and everyone had BT landlines in their house and there was a BT phone box at the end of the road. And there used to be these BT adverts on the, on the television. And, and that inspired me as a child. Like I, when I was older, um, I wanted to own British Telecom. And, and I remember I asked my uncle Tony when I was little yeah. how much money British Telecom made. And he said they make billions of pounds. And that was what inspired me as a child. And that was what my dream was. When I was a young kid, it was when I got older, I wanted to own British Telecom. And I can remember that like, people used to ask me and I used to say, well, I'm, that's what I want to do when I'm older. And again, I had this drive to achieve something. But what I did from a young age, again, I connected success up to wealth mm-hmm. and the acquisition of acquiring wealth, um, which obviously later on in my life was very detrimental. Yeah, well, where did, yeah, I suppose, where did that that drive for, you mentioned, you know, wanting to be a billionaire, wanting to earn a lot of money, that drive for wealth, where did that ultimately, I suppose, lead you to? Well, this is when like a person did come into my life and, and that was my mum's ex-husband, um, Billy. And um, he came into our lives when I was eight years old. Um, my mum had married him when she was 16 years old. They literally grew up together as children. Mm. Um, she got married to him at 16. She fell pregnant with my sister when she was 18. And then they ended up getting divorced. 
Um, and then years later, my mum met my dad and then I was sort of born and my dad died. And then when I was eight years old, Billy come into our home, come into our lives. And very few men ever come into our, our home other than my uncles. So one day this man turns up, jet black hair, big gold watch on his wrist, immaculately dressed. Um, I remember he had really shiny shoes and he come into our home and I was just in awe of him. From the first moment I saw him, I was just magnetized to him. And he went into the living room and he sat down with my mum and my sister. Um, and he asked me to go and make him a, a hot drink, a cup of tea. And I went into the kitchen and I made him his cup of tea. And I went back into the living room and I gave it to him. And I was sitting there and he was talking to my mum. And, and again, I was too young to really understand what was going on. And then after about an hour or so, he got up and left. And as he was walking out the front door, he patted me on the head and he said, you're a good boy. And he gave me a 20 pound note. And it was the first time a grown adult had ever given me paper money. And I was just like, wow, like I've never been given a 20 pound note before. And I, obviously as a child, the first thing I'm thinking about is going to Woolworths and buying some sweets from the pick and mix. <laughs> and when he left, we went back into the living room and I asked my mum who he was. And my mum explained that when she was really young, she was married to him before she married to my dad and my sister, was actually my half sister and that was her dad. Um, and again, I was a little bit confused because I didn't really understand what all that meant. And anyway, as the weeks progressed, he used to come round and he would take my sister out. And, and then he asked my mum if I could go and my mum agreed because I, I think my mum didn't want me to miss out on an opportunity to like, go and do something nice. So, as the weeks went on and on and on, he'd come around every Saturday, pick my sister up. And eventually it got to a point where he stopped taking my sister out and he continued taking me out. And he completely opened up this different world to me. Like at the time, my mum was a florist. Um, she didn't really have much money. Like she, she wasn't struggling, but she, she, she just didn't have a lot. But she did everything she could to make sure me and my sister had a really good childhood and we had everything we needed. Um, but Billy had this, this obscene amount of wealth that I could see as a kid, like he had a Mercedes Benz, um, everything revolved around money. And when he would take me out to restaurants, I was quite a shy child. Um, and I always used to like hide behind my mum a little bit and behind my sister. And I didn't really have much confidence. And he would take me to restaurants and he'd make me sit down and he, and he would make me order my own food. And, and as I got a little bit older, I sort of started realizing that people treated him a lot different to other people. They respected him. They treated him completely different. Like if we went into a restaurant or, or a bar or, or a clothes shop, the treatment that he got compared to other people was so different. Um, and it was only when my granddad passed away, when I was about 11 years old, 12, we went to go and clear my granddad's flat out. And um, my granddad had this massive envelope in a drawer. And in the envelope was all these newspaper clippings from all the tabloid press in the UK, the Sun, the Mirror. And there was Billy on the front pages of all these clippings that my granddad had, uh, had kept. And it transpired that Billy was one of the most prolific armed robbers in the United Kingdom. Um, he had five acquittals at the Old Bailey. He was a multimillionaire when he was 21 years old, which he never used to stop telling me about. But he never used to tell me that what he used to do. So I just thought he had lots of money. But when I read these newspaper clippings, I kind of started connecting up all the dots. And all of these men that he was exposing me to as a kid, 
I kind of realised then they were probably all doing the same thing as what he had done and what he was probably doing then when I was with him. And then I started getting more inquisitive when I was with him and I was asking him questions and he was always very guarded around stuff. And then when I was about 13, um, there was a film on Channel 3. Um, it was called Fool's Gold. And my real dad that died, um, his brother Michael, committed the biggest armed robbery in the world. And I sat down and watched this film um, where Sean Bean was playing my uncle in a, in a Hollywood film. And I saw that Sean Bean was sitting on £26 million worth of gold bullion um, in this Hollywood film. And I, I feel embarrassed today to say it, but that film inspired me then to become a criminal. Um, because what, what had happened was when I was sort of around all these older people that had, and had a complete disregard for the law, like complete disregard. And when you're a young man and you're, you're searching for, for being successful and you're searching for your meaning in life and you want to do something you, and you are ambitious and you want to achieve something, I then saw... An, an, an obtainable path to travel down where I could reach that goal of acquiring that wealth. And you're around these men that think like that in regards of they've got no respect for the law or they do what they want when they want. And as a young person, especially as a male, that's very exciting and you can get quite easily drawn into that. And then when that world and that lifestyle is becoming quite sort of um, accessible and encouraged, um, that was when I made the decision that that is what I was going to do when I was older. So, yeah, because I guess as you're describing then, all of those influences, you know, you describe, you know, looking up to him and going out with him and having a good time. And then, you know, it's it's quite glamorized, you know, even finding, you know, newspaper covers or, or watching a film, which is about, you know, your, your dad's brother. And, it, and like you said, it does seem if you're young, I, I suppose that kind of, the power side of it or the excitement part or the kind of the glamorization of the, you know, the crime scenes and all the rest of it. But did you, I guess at that time, did you feel any sense of, I don't know, fear or was there any kind of moral compass thinking, Oh, this could be, or, or were you just, I get just drawn into it? Yeah. Like, no, because in regards of when you, when you, when you sort of are growing up in that environment and again, a lot of it was subconscious to me when I was a kid because obviously I knew they wasn't the same as everyone else. I knew my stepdad got treated differently to everyone else, but I didn't know what they did. Mm. But as you're sort of in that environment, that world becomes so normalised to you as a young person that you, that is your world. You don't see anything outside of that. Um, so then the fear part of it and the moral compass part of it wouldn't be the same as if someone didn't get involved that as a child and probably later on in life got off the opportunity to commit a criminal offence. And they go, I'm not doing that. Like, I'll go to prison for 20 years. But when you're growing up in that environment as a child, that's just normal. Like your uncle being in prison for 25 years for committing the biggest armed robbery in the world. Your, your, your stepdad having five acquittals at the Old Bailey. And then when, when I saw him when I was eight years old, he just got released after doing 16 years. And all of these men that I was being exposed to, as I started having an awareness of what they were doing, um, you realise that like you're hearing these stories of them in and out of prison, um, getting arrested all the time. You're hearing stories of people getting shot, and 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 you're a young person, like you, you're exposed to it, and it becomes it just becomes normal. It becomes completely normal to you, um, and that's what you think life is. And and I and, and I've said this before, and I, I said it in my book, like. There was a part when I was 12 years old where my, my stepdad had this Porsche 911 
and there was only a couple of hundred of them in the UK. It was like supercharged up. It was top of the range Porsche. And I remember we were driving down um, a high street um, near Bromley and I was in the passenger seat and he told me to look out the window when we stopped at a set of traffic lights. And I said, what do you mean? He said, look out the window and people were walking about going shopping, doing their thing. And he was like, these people are all sheep. And he, he said, basically the, the system like does something rude to them and we do something rude back to the system. The system doesn't do that to us. Um, and that was really powerful. Like to say that to a 12 year old kid that the system's corrupt and the system basically exploits the working people and we exploit the system. Um, and again, that behavior then started to really manifest itself into my mindset and the way I saw the world. And then when I went to school, that was where I completely gave up my education. Because to me, the, the education system, my teachers become an extension of the state. Um, and I was really rude and disrespectful to my teachers. I started truant in a lot. Um, and, and what was happening, it was the projection of, of the view of the world from these older people onto me. And then I was going to school and then I was adding, then acting that out in school. Because I remember I, I used to have a, um, a, a really lovely English teacher. And I, I feel bad now, like the way I was so rude to her in my lessons, because she used to do everything she could to like keep me engaged with education because my teachers knew what my home life was like because they, mm. some of my family were in the national newspapers and there was films made. So my teachers had an awareness. Again, I didn't realize this at the time. It's only when I look back, but really they should have excluded me from school years, years and years and years before that, before I even got to the point when I was 16 years old because I was so rude and disrespectful. And, but they didn't want to because they knew if I did get excluded, the likelihood is I would definitely end up getting involved in that world. But she used to do everything she could to sort of help engage me into the education process. But I just used to think like, if I get an A in English or maths, that's not gonna, wanna, that's not gonna get me what I want in life because all of these men that I see with all this money and wealth, they're not academically clever, but they're all incredibly wealthy. Yeah, and you know what, I want to kind of loop back on what you said there about this idea that you were being told about this system and how, you know, yeah, all these people are sheep and, and I guess that, you know, we're taking something from this system which oppresses you and I suppose that feeling of maybe rebellion and power and, and control and saying that, you know, it sounds to me anyway that there's a that idea that, you know, I've, I've heard you speak before about kind of, I guess, like the, a moral code around, you know, crime and actually when it was okay to, and who it was okay to commit crime to. So for example, you know, not going out and robbing an old lady on the street because you're like, no, 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 that's not cool, you know, but actually going to, you know, like you say, a system and saying, okay, we're going to take money from a bank, for example, is kind of fair game. And so I think it's kind of, yeah, it was very interesting hearing you say how those seeds were kind of planted, I suppose, to kind of incite that feeling in you to like an us and them between you and the system. Yeah, de definitely. And there, there was a very, very, very strong moral compass like in regards of that world and the rules and regulations that world. Like my stepdad always used to say to me when, when I was younger, the only thing you've got in the world is your name. Um, and once you've destroyed that, you're gone in that world. Once you people lose respect for you, they've lost respect for you. Um, I didn't do what I was doing years ago. Like I was never interested in, in being what you would class as like something like Goodfellas or a gangster. That didn't interest me. It was about the acquisition of money. Um, and my stepdad always used to, 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 to install that into me. You don't want people to be scared of you and stuff. Like That's not what you do. You're not a gangster. You're not, we're not gangsters. We take from the system. Um, and, and that was what the motivation was. Like It wasn't about running around intimidating people. 
Um, like if I would have ever have put laid a finger or, or hurt a woman or a child, it just wouldn't have happened. Like it mm. was it was instilled into me as a kid, and especially where my mum and my sister um, brought me up with my aunties. But in that world, like those that the way that that gets schooled into you, the rights and wrongs of your own moral compass. So then talk me through what happens next. So you leave school and then you what happens next? You kind of go into into that world. You know, they kind of take you under their wing and kind of teach you, I guess, about that life. Yeah, like when, when I was at school, I, I was all like I said, I was already truanting quite heavily. I'd never been in trouble with the police before. Uh, so I had no criminal record. But when I got to the to to my 16th birthday and I was doing my GCSEs, my mum got really upset. She wanted me to do my GCSEs because she said, you need to leave school with some sort of form of qualification. Um, and just to sort of make my mum happy because she was getting really upset, I, I went and sat my GCSEs. I didn't do any coursework leading into them. Um, I sat there, I did my exams. I went back to pick my GCSE results up. Um, I had a year, Mr. Vickers was there in the assembly hall. I was the last student to turn up. And I remember he had the envelope in his hand with all my qualifications in them. And he said, do you want to look at them or do you want me to tell you what you've got? And I was disinterested. I said, you tell me. And he opened them up and I remember his face. He looked at me and he, and he was just, he looked quite sad. Like he, he looked at me and he said, if only you would have applied yourself, John, what you could have done. Like he was disappointed. And he said that you, he couldn't believe I, I managed to get the grades I got considering I didn't do any coursework. Mm. And he said to me, what are you going to do now? And I said, I'm going to college. And I was just lying. And, and he said, are you sure you're doing that? And I said, yes. And then he gave me my qualifications and I ripped them up, chucked them in the bin at the end of the school drive. And I was in, like, that was me. I was going to be, I was going to be an armed robber. Um, I went and bought a gun when I was 16 years old. And I, and I say this a lot. It's perverse. And it just shows you how perverse that world is, that a grown man in his 40s would sell a child a firearm. But that's how, that's how ill that those people are, that they do that for money. And my stepdad found out and he was then worried that I was obviously going to run around with this gun and kill myself or kill someone else. So he thought then it would be safe for me basically being with him and all of his friends. And then I used to go out and I used to look at security vans, making deliveries to banks and building societies. And I had a really good memory. I used to memorize like routes of what, what vans made, what deliveries to what banks. And I'd pass that information on to older criminals. And then really, I realized when I was 17 that I wasn't going to get the money. I wasn't going to become a millionaire when I was 21 years old. Like my stepdad used to say to me, do you think you'll be a millionaire when you're 21? Like I was. And I, and I realized I wasn't by doing what I was doing. So I thought, right, I'm going to start doing this myself. And, and basically, when I was 18, my stepdad got arrested by the Serious and Organized Crime Agency for conspiracy to commit armed robbery. The police were watching me. I was so arrogant. I thought I was cleverer than them. And then I, I ended up getting caught two weeks later for conspiracy to commit armed robbery. And really, this is where like the journey of me becoming an athlete really began because I got arrested. I was held in, a, in an adult prison. So just so um, your listeners will understand, when you get arrested in the United Kingdom and you're under the age of 21, you cannot be kept with adult male prisoners um, because of child protection. So you have to be kept in something called a young offenders estate. So you and should you're be 18 then you're 18. I, I was eight. I was 18 at the time. Um, so I should have been kept in a young offenders, but the Metropolitan Police believed I was a high escape risk because my stepdad and my uncle and all of the people that they um, thought I was connected to. So they did something that was very exceptional at the time. And they did something called starred me up. 
which meant they could then put me in an adult institution in a maximum security prison. And they made me a category A prisoner. So at the time, I think there was only four or five under 21 year old category A prisoners in the country. And they moved me to a maximum security prison in Milton Keynes called Woodhill. I was held in a segregation unit there. And then, cause I was too young to go on the wing and the governors didn't really know what to do with me. And then they come down and they said, look, we're gonna put you on the wing with, with, with basically adult prisoners. Um, don't start messing around, don't fight, don't, don't get yourself into any trouble. And then they put me on this wing and I remember being on this wing with all these adults. And then suddenly you're getting all this praise from these like, men that are in there for like drug trafficking and armed robbers because I'm this like 18 year old kid in their world. And they're like, what have you done? Like, how have you managed to get into this place and stuff at such a young age? And then it kind of like, I know it sounds quite bizarre and, and it does to me now, but back then you're kind of getting all this kudos from these men mm. that are like dangerous criminals. And they're all like lavishing this praise on you. And even the prison officers that were in the prison, like I remember they used to call me Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid because they was even surprised that someone so young was in this male adult prison. And it, and it kind of made me worse. Like, I remember because it's like your ego and mm. you, you, you feel like, it's not that you feel important, but you just feel all this praise being lavished on you by these people. And again, like, I'm looking back now and without even just saying it to you, like, I can't, I can't believe that I was once like this, but I was. And, mm. and I remember I went to the old Bailey. I was looking at 16 years in prison. I was 18 years old. I got offered a plea bargain uh, four days before my trial was about to begin and they dropped loads of charges and they um, wanted me to go guilty to lesser offences, which was possession of firearms. And I accepted it. And I went back to the old Bailey to get sentenced and Judge Goddard gave me five years. And I remember the Metropolitan Police that arrested me from the robbery squad were all in the court and I was laughing um, because I'd worked the maths of it out. And by that point, I'd been on remand for a year and I thought to myself, well, I'll be out of here in another year and a half because I only served half the sentence. And I was laughing at the police and they, and they were absolutely livid. And when the prison officers walked me back downstairs, they was like, I can't believe you've just laughed in their faces like that. And then they, they was even laughing. And then they took me back to Woodhill. And when I got back to that maximum security prison, the governor come and saw me and he said, John, we can't justify keeping you in this environment anymore because your sentence doesn't warrant it. So we're going to downgrade you to... to um, basically like a category B prisoner. And that means you can be put back in a young offenders estate. And then they transferred me to Owsbury young offenders. And yeah, like this is where sort of the real next journey started of my sporting journey, really. Yeah. Well, cause it's interesting when you were saying then around, Oh, it sounds strange to say this, you know, now, but actually it doesn't because you know, it's, it's human nature to, to enjoy that feeling, as you said, the spotlight or the praise or the status or the power. And so whether that's that, you know, being at school, whether that's with our peers, whether it's with the people we work with, or whether it's the people that you're, you know, in prison with getting that status and that, that I guess spotlight, I think it's human nature, depending on your personality to enjoy that feeling. And so it's no wonder, as you said, it made you, you know, in your words, it made you worse because your ego then I guess is being fed. You're being like that pat on the back. So I guess, yeah, where did what, what this, I mean, honestly, when I said at the beginning that this story is fascinating, it genuinely feels like, it feels like a film, you know, it feels like a, a um, you're telling us the plot of a film, but what happens next? How, so you're, you're, 
you're young, you're, I guess, as you said, you know, you're laughing at the police, you're feeling arrogant, you're still feeling confident. Yeah, what happened? What changed? So I got moved to Owlsbury Young Offenders Estate and I noticed the difference the moment I got off the prison van and and walked through the reception area. So in the other prison, like you're, you're, you're shown all this respect by the prison officers, calling me by my first name, by the prisoners. Um, and then I then go to this young offenders estate, I get off the bus, so I go through the reception area and off the bat, literally the moment you get off that van, they want to project their control over you. So now it's McAvoy, it's step off that line, don't look over there, look at me, answer this question. Um, now, what we haven't really gone into, and I, I know I said I didn't like the system, but I hated these people. Like I, 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 from a young age, um, when I, when I was spending more time with my stepdad, like I said before, a lot of projection of the stuff that they had gone through with with the system and the state when they had gone to prison, um, hating the police, hating, hating the system, hating prison officers. So then suddenly when I'm in this environment, I didn't like the, the prison officers at Woodhill, but when I got here, it was on another level of hate because they were deliberately then trying to exert control over me. Mm. Um, and like I said, my, my first name had gone now. It was my surname and my prison number. Um, they told me I was going on this wing. They took me over the wing when I went through reception, um, put me in the cell. And then the next day the door opens and there was like between seven to eight prison officers standing outside my door, two of them walk in and they demand that I took all my clothes off. Um, and they said that because I'd been a maximum, because I'd been in a maximum security prison as a category A prisoner, they now believed, even though I was downgraded, I was still an escape risk of their prison. And they wanted to put me in a special yellow and blue suit, which meant when I walked around the prison, that all the prison officers could like identify me as someone to look at because they thought I might try to escape. So it's basically like you're like a yellow canary walking around the wing and you stick out like a sore thumb on the cameras and stuff. So they asked me to strip naked. I wouldn't do it. Then they said to me, well, you're going to go down the segregation cell then. And that's what they did. They marched me down there. And then I went in front of the governor. And then when you're in prison, there's like, they got their own rules and regulations. So I broke a rule by not complying with what a prison officer had asked me to do. So when I went in front of the governor, he gave me seven days. It's called CC, confined to cell, which means you get put in a segregation cell for seven days. Is that like a um, solitude, like isolated? Yeah, yeah. So isolation, you get taken off a wing and you, you basically get locked up for 23 and a half hours a day. They let you out for 30 minutes to have exercise. And then they put me in this cell. And at this point, obviously, you're in their world. You've lost control. Um, so now I am in this yellow suit. And then when the seven days was up, they said to me, you're going to go back on the wing and you're going to be a wing cleaner. And I said, that's not happening. I'm not working. I'm not. I'm not cleaning up the wings. And they said, are you refusing another lawful order? And I said, I am. There's no way I'm, I'm cleaning. I'm, I'm being a cleaner, a wing cleaner. I'm not cleaning up your crap after you. And they put me back in front of the governor. And the governor sat at the table and he was looking at me. And he went to me, McAvoy, he went, remember this. You're in my world. I'm not in your world. I tell you what to do. And he went, so what I'm going to do now, I'm going to punish you again and put you back in that cell for seven days. Another seven days confined to cell for refusing another lawful order. And then when you go on the wing, you're going to be a cleaner. And then they put me back in that cell and he smiled at me as I was walking out the room. And when you're in the segregation unit, 
they're not allowed to stop you from reading and they used to give you two pieces of paper a week that you could write letters to people outside of prison and they give you two second class stamps. And when the librarian used to come around with a trolley, you was allowed to take books off. So they can't stop you from reading when you're in the segregation unit. And I took off a book and it was about Nelson Mandela. And there was a passage in the book when he was in prison that he used to smoke cigarettes. And he realized that the prison officers was using the fact that he smoked as something, as a punishment, as something to take away from him, the tobacco. Mm -hmm. So he never smoked a cigarette ever again because he relinquished it. That had no control over him. There was nothing they could take from him. And as a young kid, and I was 19 years old at that time, I thought to myself, well, if they think by putting me in this room, they're punishing me, I'll take the control away from them and I'll take the punishment out of their hands. And then I spent the next 365 days in that room, a full calendar year. Um, I didn't know that's how long it was going to be when I, when I made that decision. But after the seven days, the second seven days was up. Um, but I needed to feel alive. And when I was in that room, um, obviously I didn't know when the ending was going to be. I knew I had a release date, so I knew eventually I was going to get out, but I didn't know when that was going to be. But I didn't know how long this journey was going to be by me being in this room for 24 hours a day. So, so you um, chose to stay in that solitary confinement, that that was your choice. You wanted to kind of take that instead of it being a punishment and say, actually, I'm going to stay here by choice. Yes, yes. And, and that you, you haven't got that control over me. If you think this is the worst you can do to me, I'll take it away from you. And that was where my journey of exercising began. Because like I said, like when I was a kid, I had no interest in sport whatsoever. Um, I, I was a little bit overweight. Um, but when I was in that room, I needed to feel alive. Like I needed to feel like I was a human being. And um, I started doing press-ups, burpees, step-ups squat for us and I didn't even know the name of them at the beginning like mm. again I had no interest in sport or PE or exercise or fitness at all but I just started moving my body and I was as I said I was so unfit at the beginning I was a little bit overweight um, and I used to do like 10 press-ups 10 burpees 10 squats and then day on day I just kept adding more and more repetitions to it and and by the end of that year I would end up doing a thousand of each exercise um, and and it made me feel like I was a human being and when those prison officers used to look in that flap and looking to see what I was doing, I would just, I'd be in there exercising or sitting down writing or reading. Um, and I, I wanted to occupy my mind and my body. And I was just fueled, fueled by hate. That was what motivated me. It was absolute defiance. It was like, you can take control of everything off me, but you cannot control my body. And I, and it, and that was what motivated me. And honestly, even now, like sometimes when I really think back, like to the, because that is really where the journey started as me being an athlete begun. But yeah. the motivation for doing it was fueled by hatred. Like it wasn't fueled by like a passion to be good at something. Mm. It was like something that made me feel like I was a human being and I was alive. Um, and it's this, this hatred towards the system. Um, and that was what was the, that fire in my belly. Like it wasn't going out and competing on my bike or going running or racing or or getting aesthetic, like the aesthetics of getting a six pack and looking good because I, I was exercising so much. It, it, it took on a whole different meaning to me exercise when, when yeah. I was in that environment. And after that year, by that point, I'd served the two and a half years. They opened up the door and they walked me down to that reception where I walked in and they basically let me walk straight back out into the street. And I was a hundred times worse than the person they had locked up. I was even more determined. Like I used to have a mantra when I was in there. 
And I, I say to me, every, every day I was in there, I said, this is not my life. These people will kidnap me. And when I get out, I am going to get a million pounds for every year they put me in here for. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Oh my gosh, John, this is so. There's so much in that, you know, it's so, I find it so fascinating. I talk on this podcast and my book, you know, about self-discipline and about willpower and, you know, on a very different scale, I personally am the kind of person who, when I say I'm going to do something, when I set my mind to it, whatever it is, big or small, I then know I'm going to do it. You know, I don't allow myself to listen to my own excuses and I can be quite, you know, diligent, I suppose. But I've learned that willpower can be both a blessing and a curse sometimes, you know, kind of saying, right, I'm doing this like relentless, no matter what. And, you know, I've heard you talk about those days, those 365 days and saying that, yes, that was a choice. And that I guess through the repetition, through the exercise, through when people feel as though they are out of control, I suppose one thing you can do to assert control in in one area of your life is to create a routine to create repetition so for example as you said doing exercises reading books so you know before gosh there's so much in here but I think channeling that that motivation and as you said it was fueled by hatred so again blessing and a curse some people are motivated by proving other people wrong or you know that chip on your shoulder that says I'm going to show you you know what for example you didn't think I could do this but I can or as you said, sometimes people are motivated for other reasons through through performance, through accolades, through winning. But I guess back then, do you think that you always had that that mindset, that driven kind of, if I say I'm gonna do something, I'm gonna stick to it? Or was it in that time, just being there, having that, I guess, dedicated time in that cell, did that start to change your mindset and kind of create this? Or, or has that always been a part of you? No, I, I think it was always part of me. I think it all it all goes back to like when my mum told me my dad had died because that that woke something up inside me. Like even when I was at primary school, I I was never I just I never thought like other people thought. I I could tell like kids my age. Um, I was always more of a deep thinker when I was at school. Um, I was always I would always ask like again I was I was only young, but I was always very inquisitive and and I and I just knew I wasn't the same and that 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 was my character. Um, and then when I was put in those situations when I was older, um, it was the way I was, like the solitude, being on my own, being able to deal with that. Like, because th- I've come across lots of people that have been sort of in, in that situation, similar situation to me in those places, and it's cracked them. Like, they've been in there and, and outside, they're respected and people were scared of them and they were powerful and they were strong and what they did and um, they were strong men, physically strong men, and, and they ended they ended up in a sim- similar situation to me in, in one of those places, and and they just fell apart, um, and they couldn't deal with it. Um, where I was in that environment, and I don't know, it was it was it was all I don't, like this ability to be able to suffer, um, which later on in my life obviously was a massive attribute, but it was so detrimental to me in some regards when I was in that situation. 
Because I look back now, like I look what I've done the last year of my life, and it's and and I don't regret at all going through that situation. I regret what I did going in there. Um, but if if you said to me now I could go back and not go through that journey, I would still want to go through that journey because I learned so much about myself and who I am as a person. Um, but you can't, you still can't get away from the fact that as I was a 19 year old young man and I spent a whole calendar year locked in a 12 by seven foot cage, um, with very limited human contact. Um, and that's, it's not healthy. And I look back on it and it does make me quite sad because I look what I've done the last year of my life and, yeah. and I look at all the incredible things that I've got to experience and, and, and how beautiful the world is. And it is such a waste of life because I look at a lot of young men in those situations. I'm blessed that I got out of that and I was able to turn my life around and do something else. But there's a lot of people that that is their existence. That is it. There is nothing else. Like they, they, they will be in that environment for the rest of their lives or mm. sporadically in and out. But majority of their lives, they'll be in there. And that's what I find quite sad to think yeah. that it's those people because I was able to leverage that situation. I woke up this gift in my body um, I strengthened my mind from it that allowed me later on in my life to to, to allow me to compete in sport at a really high level um, because I was able to draw on those life experiences that I've been through. And But unfortunately, a lot of people don't manage to do what I did. And, and that's what makes me quite sad. Yeah, and I suppose that that's what drives a lot of, of the work that you, you do now, right? And and also you mentioned then that ability to suffer and how that later on in your life would, would be beneficial, you know, in your in your career as an endurance athlete. But I know that we're only I suppose I suppose you, you being released after at that time, you know, that's only halfway, right, through your through your journey, yeah. through your story. So before we move on to I suppose, yeah, the incredible achievements that you've that you've done and, and becoming an endurance athlete, take us back. So you've been released, you've been in this cell, you've been working out, you've got this drive and this you're still filled with hatred. You still wanna, I guess, return to the world of uh, the criminal world and, and go and become a millionaire. So John, tell us what happened next. So I, I got released. Um, someone come and picked me up from the prison. And straight away, I'm back in the game. Um, I, I, I'm already wanting to meet people, find out what's happening, what I can get involved with. Um, and then also where I'd been in that situation, people outside in that world, you start, you become more elevated because people know that you've gone in prison and basically you've not informed on your friends, you've not complied with the system, you've not been broken by it. And sort of you end up gaining more respect when you get out. Um, I was out for four days. I found tracking devices on my car. Um, I used to get my cars checked all the time when, when I got released, like, well, as, as often as I could. And um, within four days, I found tracking devices on my car. My friend was a car mechanic. And I, I took my car down to him to, for him to check the car over. And he found them under the back bumper. There was two of them. And then I knew the police were watching me straight away. So I thought, okay, I've got to be even more careful now because I've only just got released. And um, I was playing a game with them for a month. I was pretending I was going to work every day. And I wasn't. I was just going to my friend's office and then sneaking out the back door, but leaving my car in his car park and... I was playing games with them. I was driving around London, sitting in traffic jams and just like wasting their time in the day. Um, and then I got fed up with that after a while because I thought I'm not just going to allow these people just to think that they can just follow me for as long as they want. So I took the trackers off my car. I had a solicitor in Hatton Garden. I, I went up there with them, took a picture next to a newspaper that was dated. 
And my solicitor, I said, I want to lodge a complaint against the Metropolitan Police for harassment. And he laughed and he said, look, if we write a letter to them, they're just going to come back and say, we neither confirm nor deny we put them on the car. Even They've probably not even got a warrant to put them on your car. Um, he went, but let me tell you something now, John. He went, whatever you're doing, stop doing it. He went, because they are determined to put you back in prison. And I said, I'll be all right, Henry. And I took the trackers away, ripped them up, like dismantled them and chucked them in the River Thames. Um, but again, I, I, I did have some sense and I thought, He's probably right in regards of they're, they're not going to stop until they catch me for something or they're going to do something to make sure that I do. So like they're going to put me in a situation where I end up getting arrested and get recalled. Um, when I took the tracking devices off the car, they then knew I knew they were watching me. Then the surveillance become more overt and then I started seeing them and I think they wanted me to see them. Um, and then I had to make a decision. What do I do? And I had family that lived out in Spain. And then I remember talking to my uncle because at that point he'd been released from prison. And he just said to me, look, you need to get out of Britain. You cannot live in that country because they're just going to put you back in prison. And I did it. I, I literally, the day my license had expired, because when I got out of prison, I wasn't allowed to travel for six months. Mm -hmm. um, and then when that, when that was done, I, I literally went out to Spain and then I was going up to the Netherlands and I was going down to Spain. And, and I was then living that lifestyle that you, you've probably seen in films and stuff. And it, 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 I was just living a million miles an hour. Like I was partying all the time. Um, I was hanging out with criminals from, from across Europe, it, mixing with people that were, were, were multi-millionaires, that, that legitimate business people that lived in the south of Spain. And again, it was all about wealth, the acquisition of wealth. My best mate come out and me and him were living with each other. And I, and I remember one night me and him were sitting on a beach in the south of Spain and we were looking out and we were looking at all these like sun seekers, these boats in the ocean. And at that point, I, I thought that like we, we were mixing with these people that, that were so wealthy that I felt like we were going to go up to that next step. And I remember sitting with him and I, and I said, I think we're going to make it now. This is it. And, and he agreed. And I had this amazing bond with this man. Like genuinely, I've, like, I didn't have a brother but I literally loved him like a brother. Like I fought the world of him. Like there, was, there wasn't many people I could spend a lot of time with. And he was one of the very few. And after about six or seven months, I was coming back to the UK for a week because it was a friend of mine's birthday. And I was in two minds whether to come back or not. And I decided to come back. And I landed at Gatwick Airport and my friend picked me up and I bought a pay-as-you-go mobile phone from a phone, like it was like a car phone warehouse. And I gave my phone number to my friend that was in the car off the box. I didn't even put the phone on. And he said, where do you want to go? And I said, could you take me to my mum's? Because I've not seen my mum in, in quite some time. And he took me there. And, and I remember I was so tired because I'd been out partying the night before. And I went to my mum's and I put the phone on charge, went to sleep. And I woke up the next morning, the phone was ringing. And... I thought it was my friend that I gave the number to because he was the only person that, that I gave that number to. Mm. Um, but it wasn't. It was it was one of my stepdad's old friends. Um, and I was shocked how he got the number. And he said he went out last night and he he saw my friend that picked me up and he, and he mentioned that I was back in the UK and he gave him the number. And he said, can I come and, can I come and see you? I said, yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. And again, it was a man when I was growing up as a kid, I respected a lot. I looked up to um, he come out of prison when I was 14 years old and he was notorious in that, in, in the criminal underworld in London and the UK, 
He tried to break out of prison two times. He'd been in pretty, been arrested for armed robbery like countless times and got acquittals. Um, and he had this reputation within that criminal underworld where people really respected him. Um, and he, like I said, he phoned me up and he said, can I meet you? And I went and met him and I met him in this cafe and we were chatting and he said, how's life been? And I said, yeah, it's good. And he said to me, are you still, do you want to go work? Like are you still going to work? Meaning am I still committing robberies? And I said, look, no, I'm not. I explained to him the situation about the police. And I said, look, like the police and he was like, well, you've just got back from Spain. They're probably not going to know you back in the country. And then he said, look, I've got this, this bit of work, this, this robbery, it's really easy. Do you want to do it? Oh, and I, at the beginning, I was like, no. And then he, he said the sum of money and the green mist come over my eyes. And I thought, do you know what? It's easy. I'll do it and then go back to New, um, not France, sorry, back to Spain. And no one even know that it's me. And oh gosh, it, John, it, it, honestly, it, I've got goosebumps listening to this because it's those little moments, right? And you, you describe it in such detail, but it's those little moments where I'm thinking, okay, just say no, just say no, just say no. But yeah, so you said yes? I said yes. And again, it's something I often say, it was the best decision I ever made in my life. Mm. Um, what I didn't know, <laughs> that when we were having that meeting, there was a hundred police surveillance operation watching him and they'd been watching him for months. Oh. And I just walked into this massive metropolitan police surveillance operation. I agreed to do it. I leave. Um, I was very aware when I was back that I I was sort of I was very counter in like counter surveillance aware. So I didn't just like drive outside the cafe and then like walk back to my mum's and stuff. So I made sure that I walked through the park and I jumped over a fence. And I didn't know the police were watching us. I didn't know they were watching him at the time. Um, but they end up basically tracking me. They found out who I was. I don't know. They they took a picture of me, gone back to the police, like back to the police station and distributed it around and someone recognised me. And then when they realised it was me, the whole operation just blew up massively because then they knew they had two men convicted, were both convicted armed criminals together. They'd been watching him for a month, over a month. Um, and... They thought this is it. We're game on. That we're going to nick them. Like there's a conspiracy now. Um, so then they found out where my mum's address was. Then they picked me up. Um, in the regards of the surveillance teams, picked me up from there. And then three days later, um, we're waiting for a security van to make a delivery. And when I was in the car, um, the guy that I was with, Kevin, he got out of the car and was in another car down the road. And when I was sitting there, we had walkie-talkies. Um, and I remember, because we didn't have mobile phones, so they couldn't sell sight us, and they couldn't track the phones or anything. And I was on a walkie-talkie, and I was uh, looking in the rearview mirror, and I saw, I just I just knew they were police. I knew I knew instinctively they were police. I, I was, I was at the beginning, I was parked down a cul-de-sac, and then I drove out the cul-de-sac and moved onto the high street when the van pulled up to make the delivery. And as I moved out that cul-de-sac and pulled up, I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw these three cars, like a high speed, shoot down this little road I was just parked down. And I could see that it was like four people in each car. And, and my gut, oh, straight, like I knew, my, I had this gut feeling and I knew they were police. And I was radioed to him and I said, it's on us, the police are here, it's on us, do not do anything. And there was no response on the radio and I drove off. And I had this overwhelming sense of guilt that I was just gonna leave him there. And I pulled over to the side of the road and I had one of these, one of these moments where I could have got out of the car and walked away 
jumped over a couple of garden fences and my mate lived a few miles away and the police wouldn't even have known I knew they were on me or I turned around and go back and I, and I had to go back. I couldn't leave him there. I felt too guilty. And I did a U-turn in the road to drive up towards where I was just parked a little bit further up. And I didn't see the police had moved out the cul-de-sac at this point. And now they were now on the high street and now I'm, I'm driving directly towards them. And obviously they panicked thinking he's going to see us. And then they've had to make a decision to ambush me. And they, uh, and then I just remember driving up this road and it was a, it was a, it was in September and it was a sunny morning. And I just saw these three cars flying down the opposite side of the road. And I thought it's, it's, it's ended. It's on, it's on me. And one of them pulled in front of me, one pulled by the side and one tried to block me from behind, but they left like a little gap and I rammed the front car, drove up on the pavement and I ended up having a car chase with them. Um, they all jumped out the car at the beginning with guns. So now I know, I know it's like, this is it. Um, and I sort of drove up on the pavement, drove off. And I just had this voice in my head, like I've got these three unmarked police cars with four men in each car chasing me with guns. And I just thought, I'm not going back to prison. I'm not going back to prison. It was like this voice in my head um, because I knew what prison was like this time. Like when I went there when I was younger, I didn't know what to expect. But this time I knew I was going back to that segregation cell. I knew what prison was. And I, honestly, like, I was fully prepared in that moment to die, to get away. I was, I, and I mean that. That's not an exaggeration. I was not going back to prison. And I, I had this car chase and I thought I need to get out of this car before they get a police helicopter up. And I was driving through all these like little sort of um, estates. And I thought I'm going to dump the car and just run. And as I got out of the car, um, they were really close behind me and they ran me. The car went up onto two wheels. I got out of the car and then run off. And then I ended up running into a dead end. And, uh, and then I looked around and it was honestly like this tsunami of police officers running towards me. And there was one police officer in particular of all of them. And I just looked at him in his eyes and I, and I honestly thought he was going to shoot me. His gun was up and he was screaming, get down on the floor. And I thought he's going to shoot me. And I remember tensing up, um, waiting for him to just shoot. And, and, and thankfully <laughs> he didn't. Um, and they dragged me to the floor and then uh, they handcuffed me. And then uh, it was the most deflated I've ever been in my life. I just remember just thinking, wow, like my life now, what is it going to end up becoming? So that's it for part one of my interview with John. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for Thursday this week when we'll release part two. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.